Hello and welcome to Revolution 22's podcast. We are a church from the downtown area of Boise, Idaho. Thank you for joining us today as we listen to God's word from the book of Genesis and the life of Joseph. We pray that the Lord will draw us to him as we find ourselves in the story of God amidst suffering. Well, this last week I had a uh, meeting at John Mitchell's house and we were hanging out in front of his house after the meeting was over. And as I was talking to John, just about anything really, he, he like leans over and starts picking out of his grass, this, this grass that is in his lawn, but it is actually like longer than the other grass. So it's not really a grass. You can tell it's a weed. It's like a different color and it's four inches taller. And he's got like this section of his grass just has a bunch of them. And so he's just sitting there pulling these out. And so I, I bend over with him and we start, we start like pulling these weeds out and spend, I don't know, 20 or 30 minutes like cleaning up his lawn. And the whole time he's like, man, this feels so good. Like this is gonna be so amazing. In fact, here's a picture of John's lawn. I mean, if you guys want to see it, like, look at that. It's, it's, it's nice. He's really insecure. So you should tell him it's nice. But as we're, as we're pulling out these weeds, it got me thinking about some of the weeds in my own house and, and how in my lawn right now, like it definitely has a lot of weeds in it, not anywhere as close as John's lawn. But in that lawn, I, I realized like my lawn always looks the best after I just mow over the mow over the weeds as opposed to actually doing anything with it. In fact, there's this one section in the back where I uh, I always have these weeds grow, and they're like 10 feet from my shed. And yet I always, instead of going to the shed and getting the tools to help get the weed out, I kind of try and pull as best I can, and most often just break the top off and be like, cool, it's a problem for another day in our life. That's what's going to happen there. And realistically, I think that's actually how many of us operate on a regular basis in our lives with everything else, with the brokenness and the struggles in our life. Very often, we, we see the difficulty and the struggles that are going on, the brokenness in our life and the sins, and instead of dealing with the, the, the root of it, we, we tend to just kind of mow over it. We tend to just kind of push the mower over it and hope that it will be a problem for something else, someone else, or another time down the road, believing all the while that it has no effect on the rest of our life. But if we're honest, we, we, we know we, we can tend to carry some very difficult things. And, and as we carry our brokenness and work in life with other people's brokenness, what ends up happening is we, we collide and that brokenness spills out. And, and sometimes the most inopportune and ridiculously seemingly unconnected ways. And so as we experience this, this brokenness and this, this bumping into each other and this running into each other because of the ability that we have of holding these things, instead of dealing with the root issue, we actually end up going through and finding ways to cover it up. Honestly, you know, people can get really manic about this. Instead of dealing with what they know is a deep down hurt or a sin issue in themselves, potentially a bitterness or a, a stronghold that's held into us, we, we tend to get very manic. And so instead of dealing with this, we try to, to distract. So I will go to something that I can control a little bit easier. And I want to work out to every best of my ability so I can be the strongest and the most fit person ever without ever dealing with what's going on emotionally or sinfully inside of myself. Or I, I want to... Um, 
I'm going to, to do everything I possibly can to keep this part of my life looking like I have it together because ultimately I know deep down inside it is just out of control and falling apart instead of dealing with the issues. And, and why is this that, that we do this? See, I believe that because of this, most of us, one of the biggest reasons are is because we have a really messed up view of the gospel, a messed up view of what we are to do with this brokenness, this darkness, this, this stuff that's taken up root inside of us and, and has itself grabbing at parts of our lives. And this week, as we've been working through the, the, gospel, or the, the story of Genesis and through Joseph, we've, we've realized that we, we can tend to forget that, yes, we've been saying this from the beginning, God is writing his story and that we will thrive regardless of our circumstances when we find ourselves a part of his story. But, but we tend to forget that God is also at work, not in just writing his story, but he's at work in the individual people within his story. He's, he's working on their hearts. In fact, Philippians 1, 6 says it this way. Paul says it this way. He says, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. See, this is based on a promise that Jesus is going to do it. This, this tells us that we are here and that there is a, a there somewhere down the road for us that he's going to complete, to perfect, to bring us to. And that may happen at the day of, uh, um, at the day of Christ. Obviously, that's when it happened. But there will also be changes and sanctification work along the way where he's freeing us and, and uprooting it and digging out the things that are broken in us along the way too. So, so for anyone that's maybe hiding because they feel like they want to have it all together, it's an affront to this text because this text is telling us that you don't have it all together and he's the one that's going to ultimately bring it all together for you. In, in Genesis, we see the same thing. We see him in the story of Joseph. We saw last week how Joseph, or, or two weeks ago, sorry, we saw how Joseph was, was brought into position, that he was... He had named his children as God has made me forget, has, has brought away bitterness from my heart, and he's, he's made me fruitful in his children's naming. And, and, and at this point, the, the story turns where the famine is everywhere. And we know, we know, this is like the best movie scene ever. Finally, of all the things that God has redeemed, God had redeemed Joseph with his no longer in slavery. He redeemed the, the, the carriage ride. He redeemed the two dreams. He redeems everything but the part that we're all waiting for in this story, the part that we're all missing and hoping for will come at some point, is that ultimately we see that Joseph and his family have not been reconciled or redeemed. And so with that, this is where the text picks up this week in, in verse 1 of chapter 42. It says, When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Okay, so we find out from Genesis 45 that this is about a year into the famine. There's, there's still a lot of time going there. But there's also a couple other things that we can see that are still at play in the life of Joseph's family. 20 years. It's been 20 years since the brothers, the 10 brothers, had sold Joseph off into slavery. And in this 20 years now, we see at least to some extent that, that Jacob is still living the life of favorite children. He's still, he's still favoritism, um, showing favoritism to Benjamin, Joseph's brother from 
his, their mother, Rachel, because they have the same mother, the, the wife whom Jacob loved. And so, so this is still at play in the life of these brothers. Now, you got to admit, like, I, I, this is one of those things, the famine's so severe, Benjamin is, is well within the age of being able to be a useful person, and they have to feed a whole household, not just these, these men, but their wives and their kids. One more person would have been an extra set of hands to carry that much more and to buy them that much more time. So, so you can see that this is still at play in their hearts, that, that these brothers have experienced dad liking one son over the rest of them. Everything seemingly on paper, as we're kind of brought into the story, is the same. There seems to be also, in the way the Hebrew statement said here, there seems to be a little bit of laziness in the brothers. Like when he says, why are you looking at each other? It's, it's, it's like they have nothing to do, and they're just kind of sitting around because there isn't any water, there aren't any crops growing, they can't really tend much to the flock in any other way than hope that they make it because there's just not much to do. And so they're still seemingly, as we come into this section, realizing that there's still a decent amount of brokenness in Joseph's brothers and his father in that household. As we've seen, God bring Joseph through the pit and out of the pit into the position he's in now. And so verse 6 goes on and says, Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brother came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They came Um, He said, they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. That's a a statement to say, when you say the nakedness of the land, you're coming to see where we are weak so that you can attack us. You're coming in part to be someone that will overtake us and see where we have weaknesses and are susceptible to attack. Verse 10, they said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. We are honorable. Everything we do is honorable. We act honorable. That's this is the saying here. That this is a lie. We, we know this is a lie. Joseph knows this is a lie. At least he knew this was a lie 20 years ago for sure. Your servants have never been spies. Okay, so, so there's a couple things that we have to see that are happening here. Is, uh, most of the theologians tend to believe that Joseph isn't, um, isn't kind of finally getting his vengeance. Although, wouldn't this be the scene that we'd want to see this? Like, like when all those brothers are bowing down, wouldn't it be great if he just went, ha, I knew that dream would come true. But we, we know that that's not Joseph's heart based on the work that God has done in him already. The humility that Joseph has, has played, the way that he has given God the credit for all that is in his life, the way that we continually see from the narrator that, that, that God is with Joseph and he has been successful as God is with him, regardless if it's in a pit or a dungeon or enslaved in a home or in the position of prominence as he's in now, that God is with him. And so Joseph doesn't do it. So most theologians tend to believe that what Joseph is doing right now is he's testing his brothers. Because again, the last time that Joseph interacted with, with, this per, with these people, well, they sold him into slavery. They ignored his pleading, his, his deep distress to not do what they were doing. They flat out ignored that, ate a sandwich, and then sold him off to the Ishmaelites. So Joseph has no idea who these men are he's working with. This doesn't mean he hasn't forgiven them. In fact, we know that he has forgiven them. But he doesn't know if they're repentant. He doesn't know if they're aware of their brokenness. He doesn't know if they're in any way, shape, or form 
healed or changed by God. The other thing is, is it says it twice here that he recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. Now, that makes a little bit of sense because when he had been sold off into slavery, a lot of his brothers were already adults, so they would have kind of been through the developmental stage in that way. Joseph was still 17, working through his development in that way. But also, they're showing up to Egypt, and Joseph is speaking to him through an interpreter, wearing Egyptian clothing with an Egyptian name. There, there's no reason why they would assume the boy that they sold off into slavery became in charge of all of the land of Egypt before them. Also, it's probably important for us to connect the dot that what Joseph says he remembered his dreams here. There was the sun, the moon, the stars, right? And then the sheaves were coming in the second dream. But it was, so the sun, the moon, stars, like they only, he only has 10 of the stars. He doesn't have the sun or the moon or all of the stars because Benjamin's not there. No moms are there and dad's not there. So it's possible that Joseph sees that, remembers a dream and says, this is close, but this isn't exactly what that dream was. This isn't what God was saying in that moment. And so Joseph puts them to a test. Really, it's, it's kind of brilliant what he does. He, he puts them in a scenario that, that brings about to the best of his knowledge, to the best of his ways, to put them in recreating that which they had done to him. And so he, he shows them So he challenges them. This constant repetition of accusations is meant to unnerve them. He's he's continually saying, you're spies, you're spies. See, because Joseph doesn't know. He doesn't know if Benjamin's alive. He doesn't know if if dad started treating Benjamin better than than the rest and the brothers had hatred towards him him like they did Joseph. He doesn't know if dad's still alive. He has no idea. So he's, he wants to figure out, okay, what's the scenario? Is dad still alive? Is Benjamin alive? Have you guys changed at all? Or have you treated Benjamin the same way? Is the brokenness that was present 20 years ago still present in our lives today? And so he starts pushing on them. And what, what's funny is as he's pushing on them, he's, he's unnerving them. He's actually getting the information they have. The first thing they say is like, no, 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 we're all brothers. Which seems weird when you're thinking like, why is that their answer for not being spies. But again, in this, in this day, what, what, what would happen if, if, if you were a spy, you would, never, you would never travel with your whole family if you got caught because you'd lose your whole family. You'd all be found out. And so they're saying, no, no, we're all brothers. Like there's, there's nothing here. We're not spies. Why would we spy out your land together? We're here to buy food. We're from Canaan. This is what's happening. And Joseph keeps pushing on them. Verse 12, he says, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, no, we are your servants, our 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father. And one is no more. Now that is a euphemism for death, but realistically it's a, we're not, we don't know and they don't have to talk about it. Just he's no more. It's an easy move on. We don't have to say why he died or whatever else. It's just no more. Um, But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from here, from this place, unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you or else. By the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. And so we see them saying that you will die if you, if you do this. This will happen. Do this or, you want, or else you will die. Um, he's not saying he's going to chase them down, but he's ultimately saying, like, he knows, Joseph knows, that the famine is just begun. Didn't even make it barely a year, and they, they were 
out of food and needing to come to them. And he knows that there's six more years of this famine. That they, without being able to trade here, without being able to, to bring Benjamin to prove that they aren't spies, is what he's saying, then they cannot get grain or food. And therefore, they, they will die. And so Joseph puts them, pushes them. Now, now we, don't, we don't get much, much information here, but what we do know is so Joseph is, is angry and he puts them all in the pit, most likely the dungeon, the same place that he spent all those years with. And he puts them all together. And, and we don't know what conversations went on. Were they, were they fighting with each other? What was the thing that they were arguing about? Did they, were they trying to draw straws? Was someone trying to convince them why they think they should be the ones that go on to, ta- to land? But, but also, I guarantee these brothers felt something of maybe defeat in the sense that, that I'm not convinced that any one of them believed that they could convince Jacob to send Benjamin. See, these brothers were fully aware of the love that dad had for Benjamin over them. And so maybe they spent three days trying to figure out, like, who in the world would dad listen to? How are we going to get him to bring Benjamin here? How is this going to happen? Dad's too old. He can't make the track, so he's not going to trust any of us. Who would he trust to do this? And if you remember, these brothers don't have the best of reputations in other areas of their life. It's not going to be Reuben, because, well, he slept with Bilhah, his, his, his dad's concubine. So it's not going to be Judah, because, well, him and the Tamar thing really colored his past. And Simeon and Levi, goodness gracious, these guys are hot hot-tempered people. Why would, why would it be them? Right? And so in every situation, we see, like, you wonder how, how are they having this conversation? What are they doing in this spot? And then Joseph brings them out. On the third day, Joseph says to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. Now, we just have to stop for a second. Joseph is the only one in, the, in this whole family that continually points to God at some of the seemingly most inopportune times. He does it before the Pharaoh. It's like, why are you saying this now? He does it before a cupbearer and the baker. People that, that have no belief in God, and he says it there. And then here in this situation, as an Egyptian lord, as an Egyptian, as an Egyptian governor, he says, I fear God. You would think this would have taken these men's minds and hearts drawn to, wait a minute, this is interesting. Like, he fears God. He's, he's speaking about Yahweh. But they, it, they miss it. They miss it completely. But Joseph continually gives credit to the Lord, continually gives his motivation and his desire to do that which is to please God. He says, if you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine over your households and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Now, so Joseph changes the plan, which if, again, if you think about it, is, is very similar to what they did to him. First they said, let's kill him. Then they threw him in a pit, ate a sandwich. And then they said, hey, let's not leave him in the pit here. Let's make some money on him. And so what is Joseph doing? He's saying, okay, look, only one of you has to stay now. This also shows care for the household because the famine is great. If only one person's going back, he's not going to be able to take much grain with him. And so by having all of them come back, they can carry a bunch of grain back, help the family have some food and the flock live, and then they still have one person here. Now, we don't know why he chooses Simeon. I, you know, I like to think that Simeon was the one that somehow talked everyone into believing that he was the one person that should go, and then now they're like, well, you were the one, so I guess you get to stay. We don't, we don't, know, we don't know why. 
But part of, part of most of what scholars believe is based on, on the next verse here. This is why Reuben isn't the one. Because do you see what happens? It's interesting. Of all the things these guys go to, of all the things these guys go to when life gets hard, they go to this. Look at verse 21. It says, Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this dress, distress has come upon us. So we saw an utter distress in our brother, and we ignored it, and now we are in utter distress, and this is why it's happening. And then Reuben, stands, Reuben says to them, and now picture this. This whole conversation is happening with them together in their language. There's an interpreter and then there's Joseph. And they don't know that Joseph can understand them. And they don't see the interpreter. Probably he's not interpreting it because it's a conversation amongst themselves. He's just standing there listening to them. So he could have told them later what was happening. But they have this conversation either way loud enough because they believe it thoroughly enough that this is why it's happening. And they say this, Reuben says this, he answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. Verse 23, they did not know that Joseph understood them for there was an interpreter between them. And then we see Joseph's heart. Verse 24, then he turned away from them and wept. See, we can see even though Joseph is trying to understand and discern what his brothers are, who they are, the character within them, to understand if they, are, if they are in a position where they can actually be reconciled based on their hearts. And Joseph, you see him be saddened because this is the first time he's heard his brothers in 20 years say something about him that was nice. An acknowledgement even. I mean, it's not the best of acknowledgements, but they acknowledge that what they did to Joseph was wrong. And they believe at this moment that the reason why this is all happening is because God is bringing distress upon them because of what they did with their brother Joseph. Now, this is the interesting part. It's interesting to me that that's what they go to. See, that's, that's what they go to. They go to what they did with Joseph 20 years ago. I mean, Judah could have easily gone to, like, this is happening because of everything I did to Tamar. Reuben could have said, this is happening because of everything I did to Dad and Bilhah. Simeon and Levi, this is happening because of everything I did to Hamar and Shechem and how we did the whole circumcision thing and then killed that whole town. Like, this is why this is happening. See, but it didn't happen to any of those scenarios. None of those scenarios. It makes you wonder, like, if every time they stub their toe, it's like, ah, this is happening because of Joseph. Why is it this one area, this one space is where they continue to go? See, because I think, I think like we all know, when, when we carry something hidden, when it's, when it's buried and, and something bad happens, our minds will always go to that. See, Judah and Tamar would public, I mean, the whole town pretty much knew about that. Bilhah, we know that, we know that Reuben was, it was aware because in the blessing that Jacob gives to, to Reuben later on, it's, it's out in the open. Everyone knows about what Simeon and Levi did. There's a bunch of dead people because of them. And his dad was really angry. Jacob was really angry because of it. So, this was still in the dark. And so he puts them to the test. Verse 25, it picks up and says, 
or after sorry, and he wept, and he turned, returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound them before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with the grain and to replace every man's money in the sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. So they loaded up on their donkeys and they went their grain and departed. And, and as, on verse 27, as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. Okay, so a couple things we need to know about this. There's, there's two sacks that they would have. There would have been the big sack that carried a bunch of grain and then there would have been the little sacks what Joseph commanded them to give for the provisions of their trip. So this is what they would have fed the donkeys on. For some reason, one of the brothers, we don't know which one, at the night they're at the lodging place, so they've made the journey as far as they could to fall asleep that night before they head back to home. He opens the big bag. Maybe he opened it because he was going to feed all of the donkeys out of that one big bag or his donkey was getting tired and he couldn't handle the weight. Whatever it was, he opens up and sees his monies in his bag. And this is, again, their response. They, they, they say, my money's been, he says to his brothers, my money's been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. And at this, their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? See, it's interesting here with one of them in this way. I mean, whoever the brother is, why wouldn't they say, well, did you steal it? Did you, did the, it was a mistake? But they all, what has God done to us. Now, here's the brilliance in what Joseph is doing here. Here they are now. They have one brother left in prison. They now have money in hand and they are leaving Egypt. So, so here, here's, here's almost the exact scenario that happened. They had one brother being sent off to Egypt and money in hand, silver pieces in hand, as they sold him to the Ishmaelites. Joseph's putting him in a spot saying, will you, will you take the money and run? like you did 20 years ago? Are you going to take the money and run? Or are you going to deal with this? Are you going to come back and do what you can to save your brother as opposed to leave your brother in the pit back in Egypt? So when they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them. So they showed him, they told him about this. They, they left out some stuff like the prison time and some of the other things there. But they, they basically said like, look, we have, if we're ever going to go back, we have to go back with Benjamin. And so they're telling him all of this stuff. And as they're talking to Jacob, they start emptying their sacks and behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. So, so for some reason, none of the other brothers thought to look in their sack after the one guy did on the first night of travel. But as they're telling Jacob about all that happened and how they need to bring Benjamin back if they ever want to trade there again because they believe that he's spies or that they're spies and there's no way they're going to get food in this. And as they're doing this, they undo their sacks and now Jacob witnesses like firsthand all of them have their money and the grain. Every single one of them. And look what he does. He says, and when they, when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And then Jacob says, their father said to them, you you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Look, look at what he's doing. Okay, first off, it, it's fine. He believes that Joseph is no more because of the, the blood-stained tunic, right? But Simeon was just left. Like, I mean, hey, Daddy, he's not dead yet. Like, he's still there. In fact, we, we think we can save him. You just got to send him with, with Benjamin. And J- Jacob, you see Jacob's response. It's so funny. All this was done to me. So the brothers are saying, what has God done to me? And, and Jacob is saying, all this has been done to me. His resolve is to see that this is all an attack on himself. Jacob is so self-centered, so focused. He's not seeing God's story. He's not seeing what God's doing in any way, shape, or form. He's not paying attention to the way that even when he's wrestled with God and all the things that God has done, 
He's saying it's all an attack on me. And then Reuben, <laughs> Reuben just says to his father, kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands. Could you imagine being his sons? Like they're sitting there eating cereal. Wait, what, what did you just say, dad? Like what? Like would they then like struggle to fall asleep? Like don't turn their back on dad. He's talking about killing me. Reuben, Reuben says, kill my two sons if I don't bring him back. And I, I get it. Reuben's trying to help, but really he's trying to help in a way that makes no sense. He had no right to be able to do that. And in what world would Jacob be excited if he loses one son and then ends up killing two of his grandsons? Like that just doesn't make sense at all. It's like, Reuben, what are you, what are you talking about? I, like I love the effort. I love the mention. I love the try. But Reuben, that's, that's not... That's not going to work either. And he says, kill my son. But Jacob says, um, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Now, listen to the pain of this, this statement. My son. He's speaking to his son's talking about a son who is left in Egypt in a pit. And he says, no, 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 my son will not go. Like you, can, you can feel the weight of that favoritism. You can feel the weight of that in them. See, Jacob's resolve was to see that all this was an attack on him. The brothers see it as all as repercussions to their past sin. But God uses it all to bring about repentance and accomplish his purposes of fulfilling his promises for his purpose and ultimate glory. See, Joseph puts his brothers to the test and his brother's consciences are pricked. They're, they're, they're pricked in a way that, that, that doesn't draw them to what they did in other scenarios, but draws them to this one situation, draws them specifically to what they did to Joseph. So why this. Why, why this thing specifically? Again, there were so many other things that they could have gone to of things that they have sinned and done wrong. They all had them. Jacob even had them. But why, why this? See, I, I would argue or contend and believe that the reason is, is because this was still in the dark. And if you'll allow me just for a second here, this is where I want to draw out some application for us today. It's not easy. It's not an easy one, but it's, it's so very important. See, they were pricked. God is getting their attention. And my question is, where might the Lord be trying to prick our consciences on unconfessed or unrepentant sins? What, what weeds in our life have we been mowing over? What are, the, what, are, what are you willing to cut the top off but not dig up the root that comes from it? I brought a visual aid today, and that's this shovel. So I'm going to show you the shovel here. Everyone's seen a shovel? What, what are you not digging at the roots for? And I get it, to, to, dig, up, to dig up something is, is, it can be painful. And, and, and if you do it in my yard, it's like it's going to be a, leave a big hole and there's going to be a mess and the bark of the rocks might be in the grass, the grass might be in this, or I'm going to leave a whole bare spot of grass based on trying to get the roots out of this very thing. But see, I, th I think the reason why Joseph or why his brothers go to this spot is because what they did with Joseph was still in the dark. For years, they had to lie. You imagine that they told a story, like one story about, oh, this one time we were swimming in this stream and, and Joseph, and their kids are like, well, where is Joseph? 
What, what happened to Joseph, Dad? Did they, did they lie about it there? Did they ever tell their wives what they did? Or was that a lie there too? Like, hey, yeah, we have this brother and this is why Dad's still really sad and why he likes Benjamin more. You used to like Joseph more, but you don't know Joseph anymore. Like, did they, did they feel that weight after lying over and over and over again? Where is it in you that when things get hard, your mind automatically goes to it? It's because I haven't, I haven't dug this out yet. I haven't put the shovel in the ground and, and literally let it there or let the Lord really dig at these things in me. John 8, 12 says it this way. Jesus says, again, he spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Look, so he is saying that we are not only to be the light, but that which is in darkness of us will be exposed to light. You can't walk in the light and have darkness. What is it that is there? that's in the dark still, that's rooting inside of us, that's, that's digging itself deep down. And we, we think we can control it, all the while not realizing that it's shooting shoots of, of, of roots into other areas of our life before it, sooner or later it's going to spill out on everything. I mean, think about Joseph's brothers, all of them. Like, there was a lie in their, in their marriage, in their, in their parenting. That there, were, there was a lie, and lies only create lack of intimacy. Not intimacy. They would have always felt guilty about this. And God is, 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 is weeding this out of them right now. He's bringing this darkness to light. A verse that we all know, right? John three sixteen through 21 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Look at this. Now hear this. For everyone who does wicked things hates the life and does not come to light, lest his works should be exposed. Why, why wouldn't we do light things? Because we're afraid of what we're doing being exposed. Why wouldn't we walk in, in compa- community with people and, and Jesus? Because we're afraid of the darkness that is within us being exposed to the light. But he goes on and says, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. We are, we are meant to be in the light and, and God is is, is ready with a shovel. If I need to use it more biblically, maybe God is cutting away that which is not connected to the vine. If God is going to do what he promises in Philippians 1, 6, then that means he's going to bring this to completion. He's going to perfect this in us. He's going to work this out in us, whatever it is. So where is it that God is, is pricking your conscience? Where is it that you keep running into something that's seemingly completely unconnected and it reminds you and draws you directly to this one thing. God, I know it's scary, but so many of us have believed the lie that if I don't say it, if I can just keep it inside long enough, it won't hurt anyone else. But the truth is, church, the truth is it's hurting everyone around you, including yourself. Because you're having to hide. You're having to stay in the darkness. 
A friend of mine, uh, their marriage has um, since dissolved, unfortunately, but they were talking about a, a time in counseling when, when they were finally getting some really good work after a lot of trauma in their marriage. And, and the, the way that they described this, this process was is that they were doing stuff. They, they saw themselves as like, man, they were really digging into the heart of one of the individuals in the marriage that had a lot of trauma. And every time they kept digging and they kept digging. And, and the way that they recall this story is they said, I still remember this day. And, and they told me this and it just vividly sat in my head. And so I'm just going to share it with you. And they said, I can still remember the counseling session we were in when we were still married. And it's like we came to this chest, you know, this like right there. Like when you're digging, it's like, oh, something's hard right there. And they said, I could see it in, in my spouse's eyes that they were doing a calculation. They were thinking right then. They were, they were doing the math, counting the cost, if we would say, as to whether or not they were willing to open that chest they just ran into and dig to see what's behind, what this chest has been holding them back from. And they said it was from that moment on, it's like they took two or three steps back, grabbed the shovel and started burying the weeds or burying the chest again, shoving the the dirt back into the hole. See, because to them, the pain of bringing that out was too great and wasn't worth the freedom with which they could have had if it was ridded up from them, if it was pulled from them. See, in so many of us right now, we have those chests. We've had that thunk, thunk moment. And we keep changing spots, moving holes, bringing dirt over, covering it up instead of digging it out and saying, Lord, I know this is going to hurt. It's going to leave a huge wound. I'm going to feel so vulnerable. This much light pointing into this part of my life that's only been in the dark for so long is going to feel so scary. Just like if I turned off every single light in this room and it was pitch black in here and everyone's eyes adjusted and then I just grabbed a really bright flashlight, spotlight and started pointing it right at you. The very first thing you would do is recoil. You'd pull back. You'd cover your eyes because it would hurt at first. But as you, as you kind of open to try and see, your, your pupils would adjust. and you would, you would realize that as at first what seemed painful to my eyes, now I can see everything. And Jesus is doing that with you. 1 John 1 says this. It says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive. Oh, sorry. This, this 1 John 1, 1 through 5 to 7. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light. In him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. See, darkness cannot be in the light. They don't exist together. In fact, darkness is gone when light shows up. It flees when light comes. And Jesus is saying, I want to I draw out this out of you. And, and God is, is at work in, in making your story more and more a part of his and drawing you in so that he can, he can bring glory to himself through all that he's doing. And, and as he's bringing you a part of his story, he's also bringing you to more and more completion like he promised. So it's not really an option for us to keep the roots to these weeds deep down in us because it's darkness. This unrepentance, this unforgiveness, this is darkness in us. And it's going to spill out over and over and over again. And, and yes, it will be painful. I do not mean to be trite or minimize that which you're struggling with. I understand that some of you are going to have to confess some things that will radically transform your life 
maybe even not for the better because of it. But I don't know how to follow a God and read the scripture without seeing that, that being fully known by him and exposed and potentially losing everything we have in this world to be free with him, it, that always seems like the better thing. I mean, we just sang about this. We want nothing but Jesus. Everything in the world can have the world. Everything else doesn't matter. I want nothing but Jesus. Let's put our money where our mouth is, church. Are we going to do that? Are we going to walk in the freedom for which he has set us free with? Are we going to live that way? Are we going to let ourselves be free of the things that we were never intended to carry? Are we going to let him surgically and maybe even bluntly at times cut out the roots of us? destroy that which is plaguing us and, and ruining intimacy in our relationships and our community and our marriages with our children. It continues to spill out and affect us. We continue to come back to it when we stub our toe. Are we going to let the Lord work in this? Uh, John goes on in that verse. If I stopped right there. It says verse 8. So this is after 5 through 7. He says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. See, I don't think that the point isn't that we aren't going to sin. The point isn't that you aren't going to identify weeds. And in fact, if you've been at any house where you've had to take care of weeds, you realize that they always come back no matter what. They always come back. But when I, when I cut the, the top off, when I pull just the top and I don't get the bottom root, I'm always amazed that the next time I look at it, it seems like that weed, that root has gotten bigger. <laughs> and somehow it keeps getting bigger. It's not in water. I don't know how it's working. It's, it's totally thriving without water. And it just keeps getting bigger. And the more and more I take off the top, or if I just cut just a little bit, like, cool, I I brought a shovel and just lopped off the top, and it's two inches below the ground. Now I bought myself an extra day of time before someone will see this. If I can just do all these things, give this money and serve this way, they'll never see the brokenness within me. And then I can just just keep going, and no one has to know just how depraved and dark and, and hard and difficult my life is. But that's, that's not the point. The point is, is that we will have weeds. He says this. If we Say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, we lie. And the truth isn't in us. We know we have sin. He goes on and says, but if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. See, it's impossible to confess that which we are saying we don't have. Now, if we acknowledge the truth that we do have sin and we confess it, then he is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from the unrighteousness. So where might he be drawing us to? See, I think, I mentioned this at the very beginning. I said part of the issue is, is a gospel issue for us. Is I think right now, when, when we think about the, the potential of a gaping hole in us because of the shovel coming in and digging out the root of that weed in our life, when we think about God exposing us, pricking our conscience, bringing us to a spot where he's trying to get us to recognize that we are carrying something that we were never meant to carry, that he has already paid for on the cross, that we need to confess this, that we need to pull this out into light. So often the problem is that when we think about this, we think we are approaching a throne of condemnation, a throne of belittling, a throne of, I told you so, it's about time you finally did this, I knew it. Look at what the author of Hebrews does. This is brilliant. He talks about the rest that can be had in believing in Jesus before this. It's, it's wonderful. And he goes this whole way of like, let's not, let's not lose sight of the fact that we have this rest in Jesus shall we persevere to the end. But he goes on and says this. He says, verse, uh, chapter four, verses 11 through 16. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. 
For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. That's a violent process. Wait, you're going to cut and, oh, everything there is violent. And look at what he says. He says, discerns the thoughts and the, not only the thoughts, but the intentions of the heart. This is the lie we keep telling ourselves is that if we just keep these weeds in darkness, no one will ever find out. But God is, has been, and will always be fully aware of that which is in us and is unconfessed or not repented of. Church, don't believe the lie that you can operate as if it's not going to be found out. And yes, it might be violent. It might feel violent. It will shake. Your life might shift drastically. You might lose relationships. You might lose your spouse. Everything that you might lose, I, I, I promise you, I promise you, my hope would be that none of that would happen, but I promise you whatever we lose to be standing in wholeness with God is always a win. He goes on and says this. He says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We're, we're all naked. There's nothing hidden from him. You're not hiding it. You're not fooling him. He's not going, Oh my gosh, Brent, I had no idea you were doing that. You totally got me. Of course that's not happening. But then he goes on and says this, but since then, so, so violent, like cutting apart joint and everything is seen and they're exposed and naked. But since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. That's Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now hear that. That means that Jesus has been tempted in every way that we could possibly tempt it, but he did so without sin. So he knows what you're feeling. He knows what you're feeling because he paid for what you're feeling on the cross too. He experienced all that, but then look what he says and he goes on. So then let us then with confidence, let us then with boldness, we're naked and exposed. It's going to cut apart things and it's all violent. He knows it all, but he's, but he's a sympathetic high priest. He knows exactly what it feels like to be tempted in this way, but without sin. But let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of punishment, to the throne of judgment, to the throne of condemnation, to the throne of belittling. That's not what it says. And this is why I believe we tend to hold on too long to things because we've experienced the throne of condemnation, judgment, or belittling by other people who profess the name of Jesus. But the Jesus of the scriptures doesn't call his throne the throne of condemnation. No, it's the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. A church that we would see it that way. That we would see the experiencing of that mercy in the time of need would be so much more important to us than the upholding of someone else's view of us to keep this sin and darkness and not let the Lord dig it out with a shovel. If we have unresolved guilt in our lives, God will stir up our, in our consciences. 
If we have these unresolved matters, if he's going to keep his promise, which, by the way, he hasn't not kept one yet, if he's going to keep his promise of completing that which he began in us, then he's going to, he's going to stir up. He's going to prick our consciences. He's going he's to poke at us. He's going to draw us to a spot where we're going to be forced to face. Are we going to stand in the light or are we going to retreat back into darkness? Are we going to open ourselves up vulnerable and naked before him and say, God, have your way with me? Or are we going to believe the lie that we can somehow control it in, in the darkness? John 1, 5 says this, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Church, the darkness that you are afraid of has no power over the light of Jesus. Yes, consequences may come, but there is nothing that can overtake his love for you. Him being well pleased in you because it's not based on your doing, it's based on what Jesus has done on the cross for us. So even your fear of not being liked or received or, or, or cared for in this time is not founded because God will care and receive and love you, not just like you. What are you holding on to in unrepentance? That the Lord is pricking your conscience to revive you to life, to bring you back to being used for his purposes and his glory. Why aren't you doing it? Is it because you're, you want to be right? Is it because you're afraid of of, of someone thinking about you differently? Is it because you, you don't want people to see you differently? Is it because you, you hold higher the value of what you're doing for God than being with God? What, what, is, what is being held back in you? We aren't going to take communion today because I wanted us to spend some time praying about this helping us to be reminded that this is the throne of grace that we are approaching, not the throne of condemnation. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are celebrating that his grace has covered us. His blood has, has healed us. And, and to sit and hold on to things like we say so often, to just be so foolish of us to do. Because it's not hurting anyone. I mean, it's hurting everyone around us and, and specifically ourselves. Why, why would we do that? And so we wanted to give you some time to, to, to make that which is right or wrong into the right. Maybe, maybe take some time to, to let the weeds be dug at and, and it's going to hurt and maybe you're going to have to go wider than you want to go and it's, you're going to see it's, it's spilled into other aspects of your life that you weren't aware of and it's going to take a lot of work and you're not going to be able to just quickly do it. But let the Lord have his way so that you can, you can be free to walk in the freedom that he has given us in Jesus Christ. See, God is trying to free you up from something. It's keeping you from fully worshiping him. Will you let him dig at your heart? And if he hits that chest, will you let him pull that chest out, open it up and show you so that all that darkness can be exposed by the light and the truth of God can be poured into that scenario and you can walk in the grace and humility and freedom that God has created you for. I'm gonna end with one psalm for us here. It's Psalm 32, one through five. This is, this is a psalm of David, and it's, it's just so powerful. I wanted us to end with this, and then we will worship some more. It says, uh, verses, uh, chapter 32, verses 1 through 5, it says, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. Now hear that. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. We, we, we need to call that out, confess those things, repent of those things, so we can experience the blessing of forgiveness. 
whose sin is covered by the blood of Jesus. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Do you see this? There's, there's this blessing that comes when there's no deceit and you're, you're fully known and you're out these things and, and there's no iniquity against you because Jesus has covered it and you've repented of all those things. But then look at what David says here. Look what he says. He says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. When I, when I kept silent about my sins, my bones were wasting away. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me until my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer, Selah. Do you, do you, see, do you see this? God, is, is his hand is against us in winter pride to draw us to a spot where we finally realize we can't do it. We dry up. All our strength is gone. We have no more strength. And then look what he says. I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Some of you are experiencing that heavy hand of the Lord right now. And it's not because he hates you or he's mad at you. The Lord disciplines those whom he loves. And he loves you. And he cares about you. And he wants so badly for your bones to stop be groaning. He wants you to stop wasting away while carrying this weed in you that is slowly trickling in or, or quickly trickling into other aspects of your life and hurting relationships and, and sanctification processes and, and keeping you from, from experiencing the worship that can be had when you're fully known and know that you are fully forgiven. So church, let's be a people that will take the shovel and say, Lord, have your way with me. Don't be lazy and and not take the eight-foot steps over to your shed to grab the shovel to take out the weed in your backyard like I've been doing over and over and over again. The weed will not just go away on its own. No time will ever clear this up. Might make it more palatable for you, but it will never ever clear it up. And it will if it is not what the Lord wants for you, which if it's in darkness, it's not. It will come out to light. He will expose it at some point. He will continue to prick and prod and have his heavy hand upon you, not because he's mad at you, but because he wants to free you. Let me pray. Father, we pray that you would um, help us to get to a spot of trusting your work in our hearts when it means that you're going to cut away or dig deep holes. God, it's scary to, to think about how open and exposed we may be in that situation, even to seek forgiveness or to... Um, to remove bitterness or to do these things, God. These, these are things that we've been holding on to because we believe that they are protecting us in some way. And God, I pray, I pray, I pray that you would show us that we cannot protect ourselves. You are our covering. You can do it in a way that brings about worship in our hearts and more glory to you. And so, Father, whatever needs to be repented of or confessed, I pray that you do so. And God, if there is if there's big things that are going to change radically to potentially the negative for quite some season in our lives because we're finally going to confess these things, God, I pray, I pray that you would give us the audacity to do so in trusting you in this process. And God, for those that are going to be receiving potential confessions, I pray that you would soften our hearts. Help us to be a, a soft um, embodiment of the throne and grace. 
that we all experience so wonderfully in Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. So that when we come back to the Lord's Supper in a couple weeks, God, we can, we can come back to that with a, a clear conscience, a, a, a fully worshipful heart in a way that knows that there is nothing in hiding anymore, that you have exposed it all. God, we know that you, you love us and you are for us and you're at work in us and we look forward to the day that you bring it to completion. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit revolution22.org or on the Church Center app. We encourage you not to neglect meeting together as believers, and may you continue to love God and love others.